We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church of Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. Amen. I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, I invite you to turn to the Pew Bible. You can find Revelation chapter 4 on page 885 or page 1030, depending on which version of the Pew Bible you're using. I don't know how many of you remember the old Tootsie Pop commercial. I'm not sure if it was from the 70s or early 80s, but it was this squat little cartoon boy standing with a sucker in his hand. And he goes to a cow and he says, Mr. Cow, how many licks does it take to get to the center of the Tootsie Roll Pop? And the cow says, he's like, I don't really know much. You should probably go ask the fox. And so he goes to the fox and he says, all right, Mr. Fox, how many licks? And the fox says, well, you know, I've not been here that long. Why don't you go ask the turtle? He's been here much longer than I have. And so he goes to the turtle and asks the same question. And the turtle says, well, I'm not certain. He said, but the owl, the owl's the wisest of the animals. Go and ask the owl. And so this squat little boy with a sucker is standing there in front of the wise old owl who's perched on a branch of a tree. And he says, Mr. Owl, how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Pop? And the owl says, well, let's see. And so he unwraps the Tootsie Roll Pop. He licks one. He licks twice, he licks a third time, and then he takes a bite, and he gets straight to the center of the Tootsie Roll Pop. He says three. It takes three licks to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Pop. The narrator comes on, he asks the same question. How many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Pop? And he says, the world may never know. And do you know that some 30 or 40 years later, we still don't know? Despite college students in engineering programs at Purdue University conducting extensive uh, experiments with a licking machine that they designed after the human tongue, and then having also kind of a control group of human beings licking Tootsie Roll Pops. They came up with two different answers. The machine took an average of 364 licks to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Pop, while the human beings averaged 252. Now, not to be outdone by their Big Ten counterparts, the University of Michigan decided that they would conduct a similar experiment. A chemical engineering doctorate student, he ascertained that it required 411 licks to reach the center of the Tootsie Roll Pop. Now, recognizing that colleges and universities are not what they used to be, they're no longer necessarily a place of higher learning, but in some ways a place of political indoctrination, a high school group decided that they would conduct an actual experiment. They rejected the notion that they need to be college students, and they set out and they determined that it only takes an average human being 144 licks to reach the center of a Tootsie Roll Pop. Now, based on these results, we see there are all kinds of, of differing results. And so we actually may never know what it take, how many licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Pop. But there is this idea that what's at the center of the Tootsie Roll Pop is the thing that really matters. And that that hard outer candy shell is just kind of something you get through so that you can get to the good stuff. You know, the idea is that what's at the center of things is what really counts. And this morning, our passage in Revelation 4, it pulls back the curtain and it shows John and it allows us to see what is at the center of the universe and what is at the center of human history. So if you would, let me invite you to stand as we read Revelation chapter 4. John writes in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 4, Now after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. 
And around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on those thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was as if it were a sea of glass like crystal. Now around the throne on each side were four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me invite you to be seated. Now, if you were to give the book of Revelation a single theme, it could be summarized like this. The glory of God and his greatness. It's clear here in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 5, which we'll look at next week, that we're given this visionary glimpse into heaven. The Holy Spirit shows John what heaven is all about. God is sovereign. He's the one who sits on the throne. He's the one who is worthy of all praise. God is enthroned in the midst of these angelic hosts. And his undescribable glory fills the universe. He's worshipped with songs of praise. His creatures celebrate all that he is and all that he's done. And his rule at creation is confirmed and celebrated as he's also guided the course of the history of redemption. Now, chapter four begins like this with John saying, now, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, Revelation, as we talked about, presents us with some unique challenges in doing heavy interpretive work. There are changes in time periods and there are changes in perspectives. And so we have to first determine how do we divide the book of Revelation? We can divide the book of Revelation like this. Chapter one is uh, kind of referred to in chapter one, verse 19, as the things which you have seen. Those are the things which John saw in that first vision of the resurrected Christ. Chapter 2 and 3 are those things which are, in which John writes seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And then the third division takes place from chapters 4, where we're beginning this morning, all the way to the end of Revelation, chapter 22. And these are the things that are to take place at some point in the future. Now it becomes clear that what's happening is that God is revealing to John his future plans. He's letting John in on what is going to unfold throughout history. But instead of giving him specific bullet point detailed events, he begins by giving him this vision of the eternal triune God. You can see this in this particular passage as it begins with 
First, the, vo- the first voice which I heard, referring to Jesus back in chapter 1. Then you see the one who's seated on the throne, God the Father. And then you see around the throne were seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. John is being given this vision of the eternal triune God in all of his splendor and glory and strength and power and might. Why? Because God wants John to know, God wants his people to understand that the judgments that are going to come after these particular passages who these judgments are coming from. They're not just coming from, you know, some tyrant who's sitting on some throne and gets angry at this particular group and so he casts down fire from heaven. But no, they come from a holy and righteous and gracious and merciful God. See, the scene, this particular scene, is a key to understanding everything else that's going to follow in the book of Revelation. That these judgments are just not some knee-jerk reaction by God, but they reveal the glory of God through his judgment and also through his mercy. So what does John see? He First of all, he sees a throne in heaven. Not just an ordinary throne, but a special throne on which God sits and rules the universe. He rules the earth. He He sees and rules everything that has been created. Now, it's interesting that John doesn't describe God. He doesn't even use the name of God, but he just simply refers to him as the one who is seated on the throne. The throne of power. The one who holds all things in his hand. Now, maybe you've seen the, the, the meme on the Internet or you've heard somebody quote this. That, you know, scientists have recently discovered the center of the universe and that millions, quite possibly billions of people are going to be very disappointed to find out that they're not it. This throne is the center of the universe, but it's also the centerpiece of history. John sees that at the center of all things is the triune, eternal God. Now, why is this unique vision given to John? I think it's important because John's primary audience, the people who were going to receive this letter, the book of Revelation, they were, they were the members of the seven churches that he's written to. They're believers, men and women who have committed themselves to following Jesus in the first century. Now, those seven letters that we read over the last several weeks revealed that persecution was a fact of life for early believers. Because of their commitment to follow Jesus and to reject the gods of their communities, the gods of the Roman Empire, to reject emperor worship, because of their commitment to believe and to follow the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they experienced all kinds of suffering. They were discriminated against. Their businesses suffered. There was physical suffering, abuse. Some even died. And so God is giving the church a message. He's encouraging them that despite what they're experiencing, despite what it seems like to them, that God is on his throne and victory is absolutely certain. Now, chapters 4 and 5 prepared John, and they prepare us as the reader for the outpouring of judgments that are going to follow. One of the big questions that people ask is, well, if God is good, why is there so much suffering? Why is there so much evil in the world? But when we talk about the judgment of God, people don't like that. So they want God to do something about it. But when he does something about it, they don't like that. You know, it's kind of interesting. But these judgments, God is dealing with the issue of evil, the issue of sin and its presence, its power in our lives. And so they present this throne from which these judgments are going to go forth. And more importantly, they present the person who executes and requires these judgments. 
Now, John is taken in the spirit and he goes through this door or he peeks in this door. And the idea of the door being open to him, not that John opens the door himself, but this door is open as if he's being given a glimpse of things that human beings cannot normally see or do not normally see. He notices this great throne and the one who sits on the throne. But he doesn't describe God. He doesn't give us details about God was like. The, well, he doesn't give us details to say God is this. He gives us descriptions God is like or has the appearance of. It's almost as if rather than giving us a photograph, you know, like this is what God is. He's giving us a painting in which he's trying to communicate certain truths and trying to get us to feel and respond in specific ways. From this passage and numerous others, we know that God is holy. That is fundamental to the very nature and character of who God is. Is He is holy. He's distinct. He's set apart. He's in a category all together to Himself. He's unique. In a sense, He's indescribable. And John's uh, efforts to describe Him in human language falls short. So He does the very best that He can. Now the throne represents that God is sovereign. He rules over history. He rules over the universe. And it's not uh, an overstatement to say that the throne will become the theme of Revelation going forward. That this is central to the story of the book of Revelation. The, I believe the throne's used 62 times in the New Testament, the word throne. Over 75% of the time, the word throne is used in the book of Revelation. So this is a dominant theme throughout the rest of these 18 chapters. The person on the throne is God the Father. He's seated on the throne, which refers to his authority and his power. We use this in political talk. You know, we talk about, oh, such and such representative or such and such senator. His seat is up for grabs. God is ruling. God is exercising authority. He's using and engaging in the duties of his office as God of the universe. In verse 3, he goes on. He says, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, these we've talked about are symbolic pictures. John, in this apocalyptic literature, he uses these images and these visions to communicate truths to us. He's not saying that God looks like uh, you know, Jasper, God looks like Carnelian, but he's trying to help us understand the truth and the immensity of God's beauty and glory and splendor. So what is the meaning of Jasper, Carnelian, and a rainbow like an emerald? Well, you think of the radiance of precious jewels. You think of a sparkling diamond and the way it reflects and magnifies light. God's appearance surpasses anything that you and I can ever begin to imagine or comprehend. These precious stones represent or symbolize wealth. All of the riches of the universe belong to him. They represent his beauty, his glory, multicolored light. Yeah, have you ever seen a, a you know a, a, a crystal or whatever create refraction and cast like this beautiful rainbow against the wall? I mean, God is the source. He is light, and He is reflected in all of these beautiful ways. God's glory, God's splendor is reflected. We see in the things He's created, and also the things that He has redeemed. So the beauty of God seated on His throne is reflected by these precious jewels, but it's also encircled by a rainbow that has the appearance of an emerald. 
God's glory is being reflected in a number of different ways. As we continue reading down in this particular passage, I believe it's verse 5. From the throne there came flashes of lightning, rumbling and peals of thunder. You know, God is glorified in His judgment. When God executes judgment, it brings glory to His name. When He deals with sin, when He deals with evil, God is glorified. We don't like the judgment of God. We, we, we stiffen our necks. We bow up against the judgment of God. People are like, you know, we don't want to talk about that. We want a God who is gracious and merciful. And God is those things. But He's both at exactly the same time. He is a God who is infinitely holy and just. And He's a God who is gracious and merciful. And we see both of those things present in His throne. The rainbow uh, reminds us of the covenant promises of God, of the new creation that takes place after the flood. And they're pointing us to this ultimate new creation in which God will set all things that were lost in the fall, all the things that have suffered and been destroyed by sin, when those things will be made new. God is glorified in His judgment, but He's also glorified in His grace and mercy. Both of those things are present. This rainbow reminds us that God is a faithful, covenant God. We don't have to reject just the idea of His judgment, but we embrace both aspects of His character. John goes on to describe what he sees surrounding the throne. This is where it gets interesting. In verse 4, there are 24 elders in a circle around the throne. In verse 6, we read about four living creatures that are present. And if you jump ahead to chapter 5, verse 11, you read about a multitude of angels that encircle the throne. There's kind of these concentric circles of worship that go out. There are the 24 elders, the four creatures, the multitude of angels surrounding the throne of God, offering their worship, their service, and their praise. Now, there's some uncertainty about who or what the 24 elders are. Some people contend that these are angelic hosts that represent the church. Others say that these are human beings because they're clothed in white garments, which we've seen is a theme to those who persevere, who overcome. And they say that they're representative of God's redeemed people throughout the whole of human history. Where do we get this idea? We get this idea from the number 24. We've said that numbers are significant in the book of Revelation. And the idea is that the number of 24 represent the 12 tribes of Israel, God's dealing with salvation in the Old Testament, and then the 12 apostles in the New Testament. So taken together, it represents the whole of God's redeemed people, or the church in both the Old Testament and the New. John describes these four living creatures, and this is kind of where the, the train kind of jumps off the track, because we're kind of presented with this thing that we can't begin to comprehend. They're covered with eyes, both inside and out, it says, all around the first living creature, John says, was like a lion. The second, like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth, like a flying eagle. And each of these four living creatures had six wings and it was covered with eyes all over, even under his wings. Now, the prophet Isaiah, prophet Ezekiel, they had similar visions. They described similar created beings in their visions of the throne room of God. Now, we talked about how numbers are significant. Seven means the fullness, completion, or the essence, the perfect essence of something. That's why we speak of the seven uh, uh, torches that are around the throne of God. And that represents the Holy Spirit. The number six means to be incomplete, imperfect. That's why the number of the beast is six, six, six. Number four is used to represent the number of the world. 
think of this. There are the four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. There are the four corners of the world, the four winds, and countless other references. So when John sees four living creatures, they represent all of the created order. That's why, are they, that's why they're used with these images that represent some of you know, the earth's created beings. We have the man, the lion, the ox, and the eagle. They represent all of creation, worshiping and celebrating and praising God. But in some ways, these particular four beings serve kind of as like palace guards. They keep the throne room of heaven def- uh, free from the defilement of sin. They, the idea of having eyes all over, inside and out, is that they see everything. And they also don't just see everything, but they see everything for what it really is. They see things as they truly are. Later in chapter 6, these four uh, beings are going to execute God's judgment on the earth. And so John tells us, after describing that they're doing something, something very specific, they're worshiping. John describes their worship in verse 8 when he says, Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. This is a heavenly song that they're singing and declaring that God is holy. It's very similar to Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah has his vision and he sees the angelic beings saying a similar thing. Holy, holy, holy. But they also emphasize that he is a triune God, that he's an eternal God, and that he's a sovereign God. Now, giving all of these things that they describe, it's clear that God is the only one worthy to receive worship. He's the one who has been and will continue to be throughout all eternity. So there are these four creatures and they sing this song. They declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But notice what happens when they do this. The elders, the 24 elders surrounding the throne respond. They do certain things. They fall down, which they humble themselves. They worship as well. And they cast down their golden crowns and they answer in reply in verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. It's almost as if there's back and forth that takes place. The created beings sing their song, and the elders respond and sing their song. I don't know if you remember in elementary school, if you had music class, you would sing these songs called rounds, you know, Row, row, row your boat. Row, row, row. And it, you know, somehow comes together and it's supposed to create like this beautiful song. It was always weird to me. But sometimes we'll sing songs here in which the leader will sing and then the congregation will answer or sing kind of a refrain. We did that this morning in which I was singing, you will reign forever. And then Ben responded with, let your glory fill the earth. That's similar to what's going on here. The created beings sing one song and the elders humble themselves. They fall down. They cast their crowns and they answer, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive Glory and honor and power. They're worshiping. Worship is absolutely central to who and to what we are. All things flow out of the worship of God's people. Mission is an extension of worship. We behold God in all of his glory and we want everybody else to see him and respond appropriately. Revelation 4 should shape and inform our understanding and our practice of worship. First, worship is always about God. And it's always directed toward him, since he is the only one worthy of our worship. Our worship should be like the elders and the four creatures. It should be totally focused on the one who sits on the throne. When we gather together, when we come together on Sunday mornings at other times as God's people, our job, 
our focus, our work is to glorify the one who is seated on the throne. Now, it's easy to think about worship as something being done for us, kind of the way we set things up with people up front, similar to a concert or going to a movie in which we sit back and we take a passive role and we watch other people do the work. That's not what Christian worship is supposed to be about. This is not a concert. This is not a TED talk. But this is where we engage not only with one another, but we join our voices and we add our voices to this heavenly course that's taking place nonstop. This preview of heaven, this vision that we have reminds us that the greatest of privileges that we have is to enter into the presence of God and to be numbered and to be a part of this great assembly who is worshiping the living God. Who are worshiping the redeemer of sinners. It's interesting that God could have left each and every one of us in our slavery and our bondage to sin. We could have entered into his presence and he could have said to us like he says in the parable. And Jesus tells, depart from me, I know you not. But he doesn't. He embraces us for those of us who are in Christ as beloved sons and daughters. He welcomes us in with open arms. He's called us by his spirit to faith in Jesus through the preaching of the gospel. He confirms all of these promises through the sacraments of communion and of baptism. We enter into his presence week in and week out. And sometimes, to be honest, we do it very flippantly. We come here and... and, and You know, at the end of an hour, we may may not be able to tell you how we got here, how we arrived at where we are. But this is important. This is this is the primary work of the church is to glorify God. And then that worship serves as motivation, as the fuel for us to go out and fulfill the mission of making disciples. And we talk about kind of our tagline here is, you know, we want to be a church where we love God and we're helping other people grow in their love for God as well. And that will be reflected in our expression of worship. God created you and me to worship him. Worship is reflected in lots of different ways. But one of the ways that worship is reflected is through singing. It's through music. Maybe you're familiar with the hymn, There's a Fountain Filled with Blood. We sing it here quite regularly. One of the lines in that hymn says, When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, Then, in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. This is just a taste. Like when we're in here and the singing is just strong. I I felt like it was really strong this morning. And we're just, you know, we're engaged using all of our faculties, our mind, our emotions, our will. This is just a taste of what it's going to be like for all eternity. This is just a sample of what it's going to be like. When God's people, all the redeemed, all of creation, join and gather around the throne of God and sing and celebrate His glory. You were made for worship. I was made for worship. In Psalm 150, the psalmist clearly says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. But even when our breath is gone, the age that is to come will continue to sing the glories of the eternal triune God. Let's pray.